Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Once again, thank you for joining us as you do each and every week. A couple bits of information before we get started with this week's episode. Reminded to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Review doesn't have to be long, but I tell you what, what I really like to do is ask you guys to just leave the name of the guest of the episode that you like the most. To me, like that's something I think we don't hear enough of, the episodes that you guys really liked. So if you'd like the show, and we know you do, leave us that five-star rating, but also just tell us which guests you really like the most and which episodes you really, really enjoyed. That way, we get some good feedback on the type of guests you guys want going forward. Also, a reminder, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Hazard Ground Podcast, at Hazard Ground. We're easy to find. We're all over the place. Now we're on Podcast One, so if that's the format which you like to listen to all your podcasts on, find us on Podcast One as well as Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, of course. That's the way to go. Lastly, reminder about our promotion with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on that Amazon banner right in the middle of the homepage. We keep telling you about this every week. Why? Because it's working. You guys do your normal Amazon shopping. When you go through the Hazard Ground page, we get a kickback of everything you guys spend, and we donate it to a charity that's featured here on the Hazard Ground. So by going to our website, clicking on the Amazon banner, you are directly helping out vets all across America, and that is a great thing. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week is actually a friend of mine. It's one of the few times I get to interview somebody who I've known personally for quite some time. Uh, he is a former E-4 in the United States Army, and in his short time in the Army, had one deployment that was, well... Helen back for him. He suffered multiple injuries, TBI, uh, included losing some friends overseas. He now is a veterans advocate and also serves as a practice lead with one of the world's most respected management and strategy consulting firms. He is Adam Mattis joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Adam, good to talk to you, buddy. Mark, what's going on, man? It's been a while. It has been. Uh, you know, again, as I just said, I, I don't get a chance to talk to many people that I have, uh, you know, prior experiences with because a lot of this is about other people's stories. But you were one of the guys on the list that I wanted to hit, knowing that uh, what you went through and where you were and everything else is you and I connected years ago back in Baltimore um, when you were doing some work for Under Armour, uh, which for those who don't know, Under Armour's headquarter company based right out of Baltimore, Maryland. I was there for a while. And so Adam and I had crossed paths after I got back from my first deployment and he had got back from his deployment. And so uh, we instantly connected, and lo and behold, um, developed a friendship and, and a relationship over these past couple of years. So it's great to have you here, and uh, I want to start back at the beginning. You know, and funny because we asked this question of everybody at the beginning of the podcast, and I don't even know how did you get in the army. Man, Mark, it's crazy. I mean, I like to say most of the time that, that my story is very typical, right? I mean, you know, there's nothing unique about me or nothing special about my story. I think it's kind of just the every person's story of anyone that was in, you know, OIF three, four, five. Um, but I guess my path in is kind of different. So I I've been this technology guru running from that persona my entire life. Um, when I was in high school, um, I, I kind of had a reputation for being a, a little inquisitive. We'll say I asked a lot of questions and they got me in a lot of trouble. So between that and baseball, those are the two most important things to me was just causing trouble and playing baseball. So, there was one day I asked too many questions in history class, and I accidentally started a consulting company. The way that that happened was I was sitting 
waiting for the principal, and a gentleman came in and said, we're looking for somebody to teach our senior citizens at our nursing home how to use computers. And I heard the principal yell out of the office. He says, Mattis, you've got two choices. Either you go teach those seniors how to play or how to use computers, or you don't play baseball. So next thing I know, I'm teaching senior citizens how to use computers. And I did that for a few years until I graduated. And then I actually started a consulting firm where all of those senior citizens had sons, daughters, nieces, and nephews who had law firms or had doctor's offices. And, and they were all looking at how to use technology to make their businesses better. So while I was an undergrad, I, I ran that business. And I had an opportunity right after I graduated to to sell that company. It was to another local firm that wanted some of the contracts I had. Wait, graduated and, high school or college? No, no, this is college. Oh, okay, so this was okay. I, I ran the company for about six years. Okay, so you, you started I, it in I, high I school it. and went through it in college. I did. Okay, I did. It bankrupt my, my first undergrad. Wow. <laughs> and so I sold it. I'm like 22, 23 old. I've got $28,000 in my pocket. So the first thing I did was roll to Pittsburgh and I bought a Lexus because, you know, whatever you know, thing does a kid with a little bit of money do other than buy a car. Mm-hmm. And on the way back to my parents, I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I've never been a technology guy, right? Mark, you and I, we, we're about the same height, right? So yep. I think NFL was never in either one of our futures, but, you know, baseball probably wasn't either. But I was thinking, what's the most athletic thing I can do now as this early 20s guy? And I drove by a recruiting station and I was like, that's it. God has spoken. I'm going to be in the military. So I, I rolled in. And I said, I want the most athletic job that will make my mother lose the most sleep. And he says, well, I've got this thing that will give you a $40,000 bonus and a guaranteed deployment unit. And I said, where do I sign? So that was my door in. What what year was this? Oh, man. I think it was – I think this was November of 2003. Okay, so 9-11, everything had already happened. We had two wars that had kicked off by this point in time. None of that deterred you. No, not at all. I mean, that's what I wanted. I mean, like I said, I was I, I was a kid who had a chip on my shoulder that was more ego than anger. And I just wanted to go do fun things that were really hard. And I think I had a sense of what I was asking for. But it, it's kind of like that show that used to be on MTV, True Life, where they used to say, you think you know, but you have no idea. And I think that's where I was. I think I had like this image of you know, I think I just watched Black Hawk Down, so Matt Eversman's movie, right? Yep. Where I, I thought I knew what it was all about, and I thought I knew what the darkness and the hard days would be like, but it, we, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Do you know what happened to the company you sold? Uh, uh, it was just – it was kind of wrapped into another company that was bought by another company and bought by another company. And I think – honestly, I think that company was eventually rolled into some kind of a Comcast subsidiary so I sold my contracts to a local internet service provider who was sold to another who was sold to another. And I think the last time I tried to track it down, it was actually rolled into uh, Comcast. Interesting. Now, when you say consulting firm that you had started, like what sort of consult <clears throat> Was it technology consulting or is this just, you know, advice? I mean, give me some more background. Yeah. So at its peak, I had about 10 people on the payroll and we were doing things like I worked with a lot of car dealerships who – for the first time, we're looking at how do we start selling cars online? Um, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s, that just wasn't a thing. And now it's the only way you would buy a car. But then they didn't know how to do it. And it was things like doctors who would say, I've got this entire exam room full of medical records. 
how can I make that not a thing so I can actually use this to turn more patients faster? So it was really the the first days of e-commerce and the first days of electronic records, um, just some really basic stuff. I mean, in, in today's terms, very basic, but at that time, just not a lot of people were, were doing those things, especially in small towns like I grew up in. Interesting. All right, let's go uh, back to basic training. You arrived there. First experience is what? Did you think you had made a mistake? What were you thinking? Mark, honestly, I, I think because of you know how I went through school and, and running my own business and you know being responsible for making other people's payroll, um, I, basic training wasn't a thing for me. I mean, I was in pretty good shape physically, so um, I actually I, I lost weight in basic, but it was because I wasn't getting the workouts I was used to. And you know, once you realize that everything that they're doing and everything that they're saying and all the yelling. You just don't have to think. And and for me, for the first time in my life, I didn't have to think. I just shut it off, did exactly what I did, what I was asked to do, and, and that was it. I mean, physically, it was fine. Um, mentally, you know, there's some things that push you. Um, and, and for me, I think the, the hardest part was it was the first time in my life where I'd been experienced to cultural diversity. And I didn't really have a problem with it from my perspective, but I think it was – how other people interpreted and perceived me as being just some white kid with a college education, military, um, that, that was the hardest thing. But as far as the typical rigors of basic, you know, none of that was really um, a thing for me. Well, I mean, that's for everybody. I always ask because everybody perceives it differently. You know, I mean, it, it, through the prism of your own experience, what, what you went through and what the same guy standing next to you went through were vastly different. So, um, to that end, you know, what you get at a basic and like you said, I think realizing the purpose of the whole thing, um, allows for less resistance, right? Because you, you realize there's a bigger picture involved and sometimes you get myopic while you're there because you're going through it and you, all of a sudden you realize that it's, this kind of sucks. All right. So let's move forward from there. You finish your advanced individual training. What's next? Yeah. So that was, uh, in, in early 04, it was the one station training. So I think they were trying to ramp up the uh, brigade combat teams fast. Yeah. Yeah. And they were doing just a lot of that stuff, you know, run through 16 or 18 weeks, whatever it was. Um, and graduated, uh, hit the ground at Fort Stewart. I believe it was either on Memorial day weekend or 4th of July weekend. I don't remember which exactly. Um, but everybody was on leave. So there was our platoon sergeant and maybe four or five of us who, we're just coming in, uh, in processed. Uh, we came in, we basically ran in the morning and we went back to the barracks and, and hung out for the afternoon. And it wasn't until that first Tuesday after the holiday where I got to meet everybody. And, uh, we, we were told that, see, I, I arrived at Fort Stewart and I was part of one four one field artillery. And I think I was there for a grand total of a month before they launched fourth brigade and split us off into one seven six field artillery. And we were the first um, brigade combat team to deploy. So we basically had, geez, what was it, less than six months to organize, train up, um, NTC, field exercises, and, and hit the desert. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty fast turnaround, to say the least. Yeah, it was crazy. Um, so I went to, to OSIT at Fort Sill, uh, learned all about field artillery, fired exactly five rounds in my entire career. And I'd never set foot in a, in, in a gun again. I mean, after that, it was, you know, we're not really sure what your mission's going to be. It's either going to be personal security or something in this central Baghdad area. So we're just going to teach you all this stuff you never learned anywhere else, and you're going to learn it fast. And we, we saddled up. So, I mean, did you feel like everything that you had signed up for to this point was what you wanted? Um, 
I think mostly. I, I think I think what I had expected was maybe a little bit more of an intense experience at that point. Um, you know, just kind of the pace of training and everything else. I think I expected something different. Um, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be. Um, it wasn't as physically demanding as I thought it would be. But the, the things that I did notice that were more challenging were just kind of the the politics of the military, the politics of a government job and, and understanding how the system works and how nothing ever moves as fast as you think it should. And it's never as efficient as you think you should. Uh, you know, one of the things that was interesting about me is when I first got there. <clears throat> so imagine this, if you will, um, you know, an E4 rolling up to a field artillery company driving a brand new Lexus. Right. I mean, so I, I it's funny. So my, my commander at that point, you know, we've become pretty good friends since. Um, and he said, you know, we didn't know what to think of you. We thought you're either some spoiled kid or a drug dealer. We just didn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I had that going for me. But then when I got there, they also didn't have a place for me. Um, they were scaling up and ramping up so fast that for my first few weeks um, on at, at Fort Stewart, I was living out of my car. So thank God I'd bought you know that beautiful Lexus because otherwise it would have been a pretty crummy, uh, <laughs> pretty crummy first right. few weeks with uh, not and, even a comfy leather seat. And, and oh by the way, for those non-military listening, if you don't understand the the pay structure of the military E fours, I mean, what were you taking home? Nine hundred, a thousand dollars a month, right? When it was all said and done. I don't remember the take. Well, I mean, a I paycheck like you know some tax was like thirteen hundred. Yeah, and so you're taking home about that, you know. The, Every two weeks, you're taking home about nine hundred to a thousand bucks a month. So you know, do the math. You're not talking about a major salary. You know, a Lexus is a fairly expensive vehicle. So to see somebody of a lower enlisted rank, not only one have a car, but two to roll up in a really expensive car, it definitely would have turned some heads. So for the just for the non-military folks listening, wanted to give them some background. But did you feel like you struggled fitting in? Um, <clears throat> no. I mean, not really, because I think. You know, once you get there and it's, you know, look, I mean, at this point, let's just call it what it was. It was a boys club. I mean, you know, we, we were a combat unit. Uh, there wasn't a single female anywhere to be seen. And it was uh, the best way to describe it was it was a fraternity with guns and grenades. I mean, everybody gave me a hard time and busted my balls for the first few weeks. But then after that first field exercise, I mean, we were all brothers then. And it, it, none of it mattered. I mean, guys were lining up to say, you know, hey, I'm taking my family out to Six Flags Atlanta this week. Let me borrow your car. So, I mean, it, that, that's just how it was. I mean, there's that initial, like, apprehension. But once everyone gets to know everyone and we understand that, you know, hey, we're, we're all in this together and, you know, we don't know what we're getting into in the next six months and let's just kind of bro out and make the best of it. Um, that, that's kind of where, where we ended up. And it was it's a pretty special place. I mean, a lot of those guys, you know, I'm still in contact with to this day. Um, you know, it, the funny thing is, and I'm sure you can relate, I mean, it, it's the only time in your life where, you meet people for a relatively short amount of time, right? So my, my entire time in service was just shy of three years. And there's people in that three-year time frame that I maybe only knew for 14 or 16 months. And I might not have seen them for a decade or more. But if they walk in the house today, it's like I just saw them yesterday and I'd do anything in the world for them. Yep. And I think there's just something special about that environment and those circumstances that make everything else that makes life hard irrelevant because you're literally going to do the hardest job anyone could ever ask of you, and you do it with a smile on your face, and you do what you're told, and you drive on, and you make the best of it. And, and those bonds are pretty special. And, and just to, we, we bring this point up a lot, and just to kind of you know shed some light on it for, again, maybe the non-military people listening. Here's the difference. I mean, like 
you see people who have gone through unfortunate circumstances in life, i.e. maybe it's, you know, just to be frank about it, there's a sexual assault, right? And they're around other sexual assault survivors. And that is a singular solitary event that may haunt them for the rest of their lives. There is a big difference between a singular solitary event that stays with somebody and a repetitive day after day after day after day after day after day for an extended period of time of doing of, of a traumatic event over and over and over and over again that changes the dynamic of the bonds between you know, soldiers in war, Marines, airmen, whatever it may be. And what you alluded to, we, we've said all the time, there are guys I haven't spoken to in 10 years from my deployment. Walked in the room, we'd hug each other like we just saw, we've been best friends for a decade and, and not a day has gone by without talking to each other. It's just the, it's the dynamics of the, the corporate culture, but it, it's also the, the, the struggle that you go through together in war and, and surviving it that, that makes it forever uh, makes you ever, forever connected. So uh, agree 100% on that. All right. You know, Mark, and that's a Go damn ahead. good point. I think it's something we need, we need to be, in essence, a little thankful for because you, know, you, you mentioned a lot of these other traumas that people go through. And, you know, you start looking at the 22-a-day statistics and things like that. You know, for all of the crap that we all went through in the in the hard, horrible days, you know, the most important thing that we have is each other. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're never alone. I mean, you know, you, I live in San Antonio now, so I throw a rock and I hit, I mean, literally the guy that lives next door to me was an infantry officer. Um, you know, so no matter what, I mean, for how horrible all this stuff was, there's such a broad community out there that's that's there to be supportive and they're going to talk you through it. And I think, you know, you look at all the trauma that's out there, in essence, we're pretty lucky. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's a fortunate brotherhood that we stand in um, and sisterhood for that matter. I didn't want to you know, uh, put off any of the females out there, but you get the point. And so uh, to that end, um, it's part of the reason why I've stayed in so long. You know, I'm coming up on 20 years here in May uh, as we record this in the beginning of March. And, and uh, I, you know, everybody always tells you that it goes by so fast and you never think that it does until you start getting through it and you realize where did 20 years go? Uh, and you stay around so long because, well, if I didn't deploy twice, I probably would have never stayed because I would have gotten bored and left. And I, th- there wasn't that connection to something greater. And, and, and until you have that real experience, um, I, I think the service in and of itself sometimes can be a little bit, um, as you would understand, a little bit less fulfilling than what you'd think. Right. There are people who do it because they absolutely love it. Right. And I, I truth be told, I wasn't one of those guys. I didn't absolutely I, I didn't get in because I absolutely loved it. I signed up pre 9-11 to pay for college. So it wasn't, it was more of a necessity, a, a means to an end than it was a decision about my life or, or any sense of overwhelming patriotism, like many of the people on the podcast who signed up after 9-11, you know? So uh, I think that this organization and, and the military in general, um, it, it everybody reacts differently to it, but it also draws different things out of different people. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about that is, you know, we all have different stories coming in. Mm-hmm. But when you stand there, um, you know, at reception before you hit basic training, none of those stories matter anymore. And you get your haircut and you get your uniform and you get your boots and none of it matters. It doesn't matter where you came from, what your experience was right there in that moment. You're all exactly the same. I mean, it might be that you're exactly the same in that you're absolutely nothing, but you're all exactly the same. And you've got that fresh start. And, you know, as you continue to process all of that and grow, I mean, you kind of do it together. I mean, all the things that make you different and unique are what bring you together as a strong team. It's it's a really cool thing. Okay, let's get back to uh, your deployment. So when do you actually hit ground in country in Iraq? What are you told and what's your mission? Do you know anything? Uh, so we, we kind of knew going in that we were going to be in central Baghdad. Um, so we start off doing a lot of um, personal security 
escort for Department of State, uh, high-value targets, anyone that came through. Our AO was um, basically, I guess it would be Western Central Baghdad um, into Sadr City. So and the, the occasional money run to the airport. But, I mean, it was really kind of that downtown area. Um, we didn't know what to expect. You know, I mean, 4th ID was the group we were replacing. They had been there for 18 months. It had been a long 18 months, but relatively quiet. So I think, you know, we kind of walked in with a little bit of a confidence. Um, you know, the, the group we were replacing had been hit a lot, but they, they had lost one person and, and that was it. So I think we were coming in, we were feeling strong, we were feeling good. You know, we were told since the beginning that, you know, we were experiment an experiment that was going to prove out to be the best idea that the military ever had, which is, is kind of ironic how those ideas have influenced my career since then. But, but nonetheless, you know, we, we hit the ground um, landed in Kuwait off that World Airlines jet, and it was just like a big desert trip. Um, you know, we got on our first bus with, you know, the, the Kuwaiti nationals driving us, and we hit Camp New York, and it was just like continuing field exercises, um, just intense and in the desert versus intense in central Georgia. Yeah, well, the the heat and humidity was about the same, I would assume. Uh, for those who have never been to either Kuwait or um, Savannah uh, in the outst- outskirts of, uh, of Fort Stewart, yeah, it's uh, pretty pretty miserable. Um, okay, so what time frame is this? What month, year? Beginning so of this 05? was actually the exact opposite of what you're describing. This was December, so this was uh, okay, yeah. December 04, and it was freezing. I mean, unless you've experienced a desert cold, I mean, look, I, I grew up in Western PA, so if you look at the temperature there right now, it's cold. But it's a whole different thing than, than those desert cold nights. It was it was frigid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. All right. Um, when do you actually move north? So we, we got the order. We were going to move um, into Iraq in, in early January. And I don't know how many folks you've talked to that have done similar things, but you know we, we are responsible for driving our own vehicles up. And at this point in time, this was – I think we fell back into some 114 up-armored Humvees when we got in-country. Yeah. But the vehicles we brought from Fort Stewart were just soft doors. And you know we, we had the choice of either leaving the doors on or taking the doors off and driving in. And I think we, we were coached to take the doors off, and, and we rolled from Kuwait um, right into downtown Baghdad. And you know if you think – if you contrast how things were – when we left versus how they were when we came in that 12 months um, at the end, you never would have done that in a million years. No. Yeah. And I was there the exact same time. I mean, I was there from um, February of 05 through April of 06. So you and I plowed the uh, same fertile turf and yeah, you're out Tampa must've been scenic at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. There, my, my favorite part was driving through the litter left from the Gulf war Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. just, just before you cross the border. And you know, Mark, that's actually really funny. So you were talking about how fast time goes. Last night I was watching uh, the George W. Bush movie. Um, I, I guess it's a biopic. But it, it occurred to me that more time has passed between our deployment and now than when the Gulf War ended and we would have gone in. So like, if you would think snapshot basic training, how old those guys from the Persian Gulf War must have seemed mm-hmm. to how old we are now, it's crazy. Time sure does fly. Yeah, that's unreal. I never even put it in that context. And and for those not know, Rod Tampa was kind of the uh, the main thoroughfare from southern Iraq, uh, where where the on the Kuwaiti border all the way up to Mosul and northern Iraq. So it was just uh, that one main road that kind of dissected the country. All right, so you move forward. Once you get up towards Baghdad, um, do you know exactly what you're supposed to be doing? 
So we didn't, not really until we got there. Um, I'm sure people that made a lot more money than I did knew, but you know, we didn't. It was just get the vehicles there and and we'll fall in with this fourth ID unit and we'll learn our missions. So I think when we first got there uh, that day, one of the vehicles had been hit. And I I think I, I remember just kind of standing there, you know, hanging out on the fob at that point and seeing this truck roll in just toasted, but everybody jumping out happy and smiling and laughing. And I'm like, huh. If this is deployment and this is combat, I mean, they seem to be doing all right after 18 months. You know, it, how bad could it be? Well, obviously, you'll find out. And and refresh my memory because I'm just trying to think. You know, when I first got there, roadside bombs were a thing, but they weren't like a thing thing. Like by the time we had left, you know, like yeah. it had really taken – they had taken a whole new – taken to a whole new level um, all throughout 2005 towards the end of 2006. So um, – you know, how quickly do you start to experience some of this stuff? So it's, it's, it's real interesting. I can draw a perfect line in the sand. So up until April of that year, um, roadside bombs were basically C C4 and a Coke can, maybe yep. some tripwire hand grenades. And they were starting to detonate uh, one five, five artillery rounds, but they couldn't get the primary charges to detonate. So in an artillery round, there's, Kind of there, there's the charge at the top of the round that is used to detonate the rest of the round. So there's um, there's the fuse. I guess it would be like the detonation charge and then the main charge. But they couldn't get those main charges to go. So you'd even you know you, you'd roll over one of these in a Humvee, it'd pop off and it'd blow the the combat locks in your doors. Your doors would go open, little concussion, shut them and drive off. But it wasn't a big deal. Um, but that all changed in April. Um, that's when the EFPs first started showing up, and that's when we lost our our first guys. So you know, interesting context to remember as we continue the story is this was one of the first EFPs seen in theater, and it was a single barrel EFP on an on ramp, ex- explosively formed projectile. I'll let you kind of explain what that is. Um, but it was it was a truck with uh, three of our guys and a Georgian, uh, the country of Georgia national in it, and a single barrel EFP, uh, one explosive killed all of our guys in a heartbeat to the point where uh, the medics had to basically shovel out um, what was left of our guys and, and do their best to identify them. And this Georgian national ended up being a quadriplegic. So that's a single barrel EFP. Um, that, that's when we really started to understand our own mortality. Yeah. And, you know, the the explosive form project, projectiles changed the game on us in a multitude of ways, not only because they could pierce the armor on the Humvees. That was the biggest thing, right? Like, in a sense, you felt like when you shut the door to the Humvee, you were you were fairly 95% safe from anything that had gone on. That was no longer the case. And so from that standpoint, it became a game changer. Uh, they, we tried several different tactics to try to thwart them. You know, we would we would extend an arm out that went like five feet out from the front of the Humvee that would try to do be the tripwire first if there was you know something that wasn't command detonated um to try and let the projectile go before the vehicle actually rolled over it they started sticking armor plates underneath like flat out underneath the vehicle and i remember um when i was there that they had a whole units from the 10th mountain that welders were going nuts and they were just sticking you know six inches pieces of, of steel plating underneath now think about a humvee for those who don't know this thing doesn't travel much more than 50 miles an hour anyway Add an extra, you know, iron plate underneath that basically covers the entire engine of a Humvee that's about nine to ten feet long. I mean, this thing is stuck going at thirty miles an hour at top speed, and, and you are a slow sitting duck target. But in the same respect, the thought process was that the more armor we can throw on this thing, the safer people will be. 
reasonable minds can choose to disagree whether that was the right tactic or not. But we, we tried a lot of different things, and it was a constant chess match back and forth. What the enemy did, we had to counteract. And then when they figured out that we counteracted it, they, they, they came up with a new tactic. And so round and round we went for a really long time. In the process, a lot of lives were lost. Yeah, man, it's it's funny you mention that arm. So <clears throat> I actually, I, I drew uh, the first schematics for the first arm we put on on the trucks, and you know our lead vehicle was the first one to run it in theater. And it was at that point a steel arm with a rubber mud flap on it. You know, before people a lot smarter than me got a hold of it and started putting things like um, glow plugs and things like that in it to make it a lot hotter. Uh, but that's yeah, you're right, man. I'll tell you, you, you start welding things on those trucks and. You know, 10,000 pounds of extra armor. So, yeah, the engines aren't meant for it and, and everything else. But, whew, that air conditioner, man, it it, uh, it sure didn't keep up. No, <laughs> to say the least. Let me ask you, go back to that that first one where you said you lost four of your guys. For yeah. the, the initial reaction you had that when you saw guys come in and they were laughing and joking, and even though the vehicle was blown up, then you have that happen. How, do, how does your emotions swing? Um, it sucks the life right out of you. I mean, like a vacuum in your face, sucking the, the just the wind out of your lungs um, and, and watching, you know, your medics chisel guys that, you know, out of a vehicle. And, and it, it just it changed everything um, in, in that very instant. Um, it, it wasn't fun anymore. And it was very much us versus them. And we're not going to lose. Did you regret anything? Any of your decisions that you had made? Did you think you walked in this capriciously at this <clears> point in time? Absolutely not. I mean, it was never about me. The only thing that, you know, the the funny thing was not funny at all. The horrible thing was you talk about the mentality, right? So we hear on the radio that this has happened and, you know, they call for um, a QRF to to go out and and get these guys uh, to bring their vehicle back. And you would have had, you had to fight us all off with a stick. Everybody in the company was going, we were ready. We were ready to go now. So I don't think it changed the mission at all. And if anything, it solidified the bonds that were between us that, you know, hey, this isn't a game. We've got to take care of each other because out there, when it's 12 of us on the street, we're all we have. So the the roadside bombings and the vehicle bombings continue for you guys. Along with that, you guys were facing some other challenges as well, including, you know, guys taking their own lives. Yeah, so there's – it was a long year. So all in um, between – explosions, roadside bombs, um, indirect fire. I was in 11 different blasts. Wow. Um, mortars, rockets, grenades, roadside bombs. Um, there, there were a lot of them. Um, so I think the incident that, that you're kind of working here to is, uh, I guess as the calendar flows, the next event. So, you know, th- things were getting bad. They were getting rough and we were out on a mission one day with, it was us and another platoon. We were, we were, going through a hotter area. So we traveled a little heavier and the vehicle behind me uh, was hit with, no, I'm sorry. It was the vehicle in front of me. It was, it was a Chevy Tahoe. It was hit with an EFP and it had gone off just a split second early. And just to give you all an idea of how powerful these things are. So, you know, for me, the, the first wake up I had with how strong these explosives were was on this day where the bomb went straight through the engine block of this Tahoe and out the other side of the truck. And what really hammered it home for me was what I saw when it did to the front side of an M1 Abrams, which is, it's like three foot thick of armor, right? And when you see what it can do, I mean, there's nothing you can do to stop it. So, you know, Mark talked about all the things we did in haste to try and protect ourselves. But when you really understand just the physics behind this blast, there's nothing you can do. So we were out that day and, you know, these folks that were in the vehicle in front of me were very lucky. Um, 
you know, our, the, the truck in front of us got some antennas blown off and things like that. Um, our truck has some superficial damage in, in that Tahoe that took the brunt of it, you know, straight through, you know, a half second later and they would have all been done. So at that point, our platoon split. Uh, half the platoon stayed back to continue securing the site. And the other half of us took some of these other folks that were in the Tahoe back to the hospital, uh, the, the cash hospital, transport hospital in the green zone. So a little bit of interesting, I guess, twist to my story is um, I was assigned to work with, you know, as a junior enlisted person, um, as, as a lieutenant specifically. Uh, this guy, I, I definitely won't give his name. Um, great guy, a real smart person, um, had zero, zero business in the military. So, you know, at that point in time, we were taking a lot of people who otherwise probably wouldn't be taken. And the officer corps was uh, the same way. So this guy had come in, you know, great guy, super friendly, didn't have a lot of common sense. So given my background and, and, you know, understanding that we were peers in a way, even though I was much junior than him in rank, we had a similar educational background. We had a similar upbringing. So the idea was that I would work with him and tactfully manage up. So one of the responsibilities I had every day when we got back was – I cleared his weapon um, just to kind of give you an idea. Wait, he couldn't clear his own weapon. It wasn't that he didn't. They, the, the, the senior leadership needed validation that it had been done. Oh my God. So if, if that, if that gives you any idea. Oh God. So on this day um, I, I had come back with the platoon sergeant to take those folks to the hospital. And he'd stayed back as the, as the command element um, to secure that site. So that day I didn't clear his weapon. And that night, you know, we'd all come back and everything. Uh, we were going to our platoon brief, and my buddy Joe happened to be in the hallway um, when when this LT was walking by. He just jokes. He says, hey, LT, is your weapon unloaded? And this guy proceeds to put his M4 in the guy's temple and say, yeah, see, and pulled the trigger, and it wasn't. Oh, no. Yeah, so that was, uh, that, that was just a few bunks down from me. And obviously, I mean, you know, we're in a safe space, right? Relatively safe. We're in a safe space. You don't expect to hear that. So we all pop out. And I'll never forget that sight of this guy just, you know, six two frame collapsed in a pool of this guy's blood and two of the NCOs just dragging him out. Um, and that was uh, that was a whole different experience. Oh, my God. So, yeah. Uh, so if, uh, you know, on, okay. if, if all that wasn't enough, <laughs> go ahead. What happened to the lieutenant? So he event he he was assigned to brigade headquarters, nowhere near us. Um, while he was waiting his trial, so you know, mind you, we're reeling. People are continuing to die. Things continue to blow up. All the while, I'm preparing to testify in the murder trial um, of one of my friends killing one of my friends. So it was it was a rough summer in Baghdad. Oh, God. Do you, how did it turn out? Uh, he gave uh, he, he was sentenced to Leavenworth for 36 months um, minus six months of credit. He was given for the time leading up to his trial and and transfer back to the States. So he, he basically served, to my knowledge, 30 months, um, maybe a, a little less for good behavior. Was it was it a plea deal or did it, that's what they the judge came down with? That's what the that's what the colonel came down with. 
Honestly, Mark, I don't remember what the plea was. Um, I don't remember if he pled guilty or not guilty. But I mean, they charged him with murder? Negligent manslaughter. Okay. Yeah. Um, you you look at what some of the other people that, you you look at the SEAL commander right now, who's under trial for other things. And you look at what he's being charged with in the line of duty versus, you know, what, what this guy basically got away with. Um, it's, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, war is crazy. Um, that is crazy. It's just one of those things. Do you feel any guilt at all because you weren't there to clear his weapon? For a long time. Um, and, and for a long time, I, I was made to feel that way. So why, uh, as I, I was working with the attorneys and were preparing for the trial, um, you know, they, they were basically threatening me with, you know, you could also be charged. You could be charged in connection with this. You were, you know, it was your responsibility to clear his weapon. You didn't do it. You know, this, this could be on you. And, you know, in hindsight, knowing what I know now, those are scare tactics, right? They're trying to get you to say sure, things. And yeah. Trying, but you know what? As, as a kid overseas, at that point in time, carrying that guilt, it was horrible. And for the longest time, that was a hard pill to swallow. I can't, I can't even imagine. I mean, what did people say to you? Like when, when, when your fellow platoon mates heard about it, what did they say to you about it? Not a word. It was nobody in the platoon would ever say a word because we all knew him. And nobody in our company, for that matter, would say a word because we all knew him. It was just these attorneys that had a job to do. They were pushing to try and get different information. And again, in, in hindsight, they were trying to pull out you know, other opportunities where he may have been negligent. Um, but the tactics were very personal. And while I, I can respect the job of the attorney, the tactics, I, I, I don't think I can ever really get past, um, given the circumstances, given where, where we were at and what we were doing. But my, my platoon mates, nobody who mattered. Um, I mean, obviously, every person is responsible for clearing their own weapon. Yeah. And I had an added duty, but that didn't make me liable. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Anybody could even, and anybody who's a, who's a soldier would look at that objectively and go, it's ridiculous to blame you. How the hell can you have an officer who can't understand the concept of clearing their own weapon? I mean, it's just on its merit. It's, it's silly to say that an officer needs to be babysit like that. And it's almost embarrassing for me as part of the officer court to hear that, but different discussion for a different time. Um, okay. So in addition to that whole thing, you've also had some suicides go on, correct? Uh, so the suicides weren't until later. Okay. Um, th- those were after we got back. We didn't have any suicides gotcha. happen in Cedar. I okay. Think. Just the, the pace of what was happening, <clears throat> there was no time to even think about that. I mean, things were just that fast, that furious. All right. Well, take um, me. I, I don't to, think anyone had time to, pr- to process. Take me to December of 2005. What happened to you? Yeah, man. So between April and then June, um, when when that incident happened, you know, we had a, a, another another guy. Uh, Carasquillo, who, who lost his life protecting his convoy against a vehicle-borne um, IED. Uh, he was basically on his 50 until the bomb went off, and then uh, he didn't make it. Um, and then things were pretty quiet uh, for a few months. Um, I, I don't know if we were just extra vigilant or what it was. <clears throat> but so you mentioned now, real quick. Sorry to cut you off. You, you, yeah, mentioned, yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned real quick that you didn't. We didn't have time. Um, did, does that mean you didn't have time as well to mourn the loss of your fellow platoon mates and everything? I mean, did, was that something you just scan, discard, move on? We'll deal with it later for you. I think we all did it the same. Mark. Okay. I mean, we we had the uh, you know the 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 combat memorials where yeah. if you weren't on mission, you came to the memorial service. You know, 
boots, rifle, helmet, dog tags. Chaplain says a few words. Everybody gives their respects, and you roll on. Um, but but that's it. I mean, we were we were rolling hard. Um, you know, we would typically go three weeks um, nonstop on up, and then we would do one quote unquote down week where we 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 were either on camp security or QRF. Um, but even then, those are twelve hour shifts. So you know, we we would typically have one day off, three weeks on on rotation. And then one week on um, security and QRF, but always 12-hour days, ops, gym, bed. That was it. Makes sense. Wash, rinse, repeat. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue. <clears throat> no, no. So, yeah, all good. So, yeah, during that time, you know, we'd lost Carisco. Um, there was a lot of uh, inbound ordinates. There was a lot of near misses um, out on the road, our platoon and others. <clears throat> and during this time – understand that my platoon's also reeling, right? So we had just lost a leader. Um, we had, um, there, there was a few great, great guys that stood in temporarily while they were looking for a permanent replacement. So at this point we were kind of labeled as damaged. Um, you know, we'd been through a lot, um, and, and that had happened and it fractured us. So they were looking for a special kind of leader, uh, to come in and help us. And, and they found one. So this guy, Kevin Smith, uh, he was West Point grad, but he wasn't your typical West Point grad. So he actually, he grew up maybe 20 miles down the road from me um, in a small town in, in Pennsylvania, which understand in, in where I grew up, 20 miles down the road might as well be around the block. So <clears throat> I knew his family, uh, his family knew mine. Um, he went to West Point on a soccer scholarship and his sophomore year, his roommate was on the skeet team and they got back from a meet late one night and his roommate brought uh, his shotgun in the room, put it out of the mattress, went to sleep, didn't want to deal with, you know, weapons check he get in the morning. Kevin's asleep. Right. But the next morning when they did the weapons check and it wasn't there, they both got thrown out of West Point. Um, Kevin broke the honor code, even though he was asleep, right. His roommate's guilty. He's guilty too. So <clears throat> Kevin ended up going enlisted, and he had to write the commandant every single day for, I think, two years. He, I think, did a rotation in Bosnia as a PFC, and he wrote the commandant every day about what he learned and why he thought it made him a better cadet. So after two years, he ended up getting his, himself back into West Point um, and graduated. And he was, he was assigned to an air defense artillery uh, battalion, and at that point, they were on rear detachment. And he was just a few months short of his promotion to captain. So he was, you know, he, he was a, he was the first Lieutenant on his way to a staff position uh, before getting his first company command. And when this came down, that this platoon down range needed some help, he volunteered. Um, you know, his family asked him not to, his fiance didn't want him to go. She had a bad feeling, uh, but him being the kind of guy he was, he said, you know what, there's guys that maybe I'm going to go. So he came and I think for the first month, nobody talked to him. Like he, he was the command, he was, he was the platoon leader and he gave the mission briefs. And aside from that, nobody talked to him. Like we had no use for him. Um, Kevin was a very like PT oriented guy. He was always saying, Hey, let's go for a run. Let's go to the gym. Let's do something. And none of us talked to him. And maybe over the course of four months. Um, so I think he got there. Maybe in July, maybe August. I don't remember. He eventually, he eventually won us over um, just by being him and being authentic, and just being a real person. He wasn't one of these, you know, fresh out of, 
you know, wherever officers were going to come in and they're going to fix everything and run the show. I, I think, you know, he realized for one, that wasn't his personality. And two, you can't take a platoon that has been in theater at that point for seven or eight months and who has gone through some of the things that we had gone through and expect that you're going to come in and tell them what to do. Um, especially with no combat patch on your arm, you know, who's this first lieutenant coming in, no combat patch telling us how to run our mission after we've been in theater and doing it every single day, nonstop. Right. He was never that guy. So he, he eventually won us over and, you know, he became again, understand that you know, I'm a junior enlisted guy. Um, but he became one of my best friends that I've ever had in my life just by him being him and us having similarities and a special bond. Um, so <clears throat> morning of December 8th, it, it, let me back up and say that I'm not a very religious person, but out of everything that's happened throughout these deployments, I've, I'm very spiritual. And the weird thing is I didn't recognize it maybe the first time, but maybe the second or third time where something had happened, I had a really weird feeling every morning going out to the truck and it was just this distinct feeling that somebody was with me. Somebody was walking with me and, you know, imagine 11 separate incidents and every one of those incidents, I had this feeling. It was the strangest thing. So we, we had gotten, um, an op brief, I guess it was, it would be on December 7th. And it was one of those things where we just looked at each other and we just knew we were screwed. I mean, something was going to happen. There was no way around it. The route was an off limits route. Um, don't you love that? <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, it, and y'all look at each other and you're like, shit, well, this is going to be a, a long day. And that night I got so sick. Um, I mean, it was just like the Baghdad crud. I mean, I was in the bathroom all night. It was, it was a rough one. Um, you know, and, and he came in that morning. He's like, Hey, just, you know, just stay back. You don't need to go. And I looked at him and I said, there's no fucking way you're keeping me from going today. And I, I don't know why. Um, so we got out there, we got to the trucks and we were just doing weird things that we never did done before. We were taking pictures. Um, the Colonel came over and said, you guys are gonna have a great run today. Godspeed. And we just looked at each other and we're like, Oh God. <laughs> and then as we're rolling out of the gate, the chaplain comes running over and he stops us. And he says, before you all leave, I want to say a prayer. Yeah, kiss of death. And we're like, Oh God, just make it stop. So, so we roll and we're just waiting. Um, and, you know, we take this right on a route and man, I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it was called. It was, I can tell you exactly how to get there. I can't remember the name of it, but you, you go kind of across bridge one through the international zone. You go through the market, you go over the first overpass of the main highway, the second overpass, take a right, whatever that restricted route was, that's where we we're at. And we were just counting overpasses until, um, until, until we got to where we were going <clears throat> and we were doing, you know, kind of the weave in one side, out of the other side, kind of under the overpasses. And I remember coming out of, out of the one overpass and I said, how much further LT? And then it just like, it happened. Um, the dust kicked. I felt like somebody smashed me in the face with a baseball bat. And it was, it was like a movie. Um, everything was just slow motion. And I pushed the gas on that Humvee all the way to the floor. And that thing, I don't know how far it went. It, it, I, I give that thing credit. AM general, they make one hell of an engine. Um, <laughs> This thing had penetrators through and through the block as well, but it, it took us well out of the kill zone before it eventually died. Um, and I looked over to Kevin. He was gone. Um, in the back seat, we actually had Kevin's replacement, Terry, which I believe you may have met. 
he was that guy though. He was the officer that came in that was going to fix everything. He was the giant a-hole straight out of the Citadel. So we didn't talk to him, but we'll get to him in a minute. <clears throat> so he was in the backseat. He'd been in country maybe two weeks. Um, he looked dead. Um, my buddy Krebs was in the turret and his legs were just Swiss cheese. And how did you know Kevin was gone? I mean, you, you could just tell the blast. You, you didn't tell. Okay. I mean, you, you look over, he's slumped over in his seat. He's just gone. I mean, you, you know, when you see somebody who's gone, you know, when you look at them, there's no question. They're just gone. Um, and, and he was in that moment, just, just gone, you know, there one minute, tell me how far to our, our objective and then just gone. Wow. Okay, so your gunner is still alive, though, but he's he's obviously wounded. Yeah, yeah. So so Krebs, to give you a, a little bit of insight to his personality, right? So this guy, we called him SF. That's all he ever wanted to do in life was BSF. I mean, he had the swagger like that. He was gonna be that guy. So he was he was up there in the turret, screaming and cutting loose on his two forty. Um, he was in a lot of pain, and you know his story. Uh, you know, fast forward however many years it's been, he's actually um, contracting. He, he put himself through all the rehab, and he's, he's back downrange now. Um, private contractor, but but he did it. He was at the terminal. And Terry, for that matter, um, the guy that was in the back seat, he's in another federal service um, continuing to serve. So, I mean, those guys really tore up, um, you know, but but they've they, they've made the full comeback, and, and they're still doing it. So when you, it's crazy. When you look around and survey the damage inside the vehicle at that point in time, what's your first thought? I don't know. I, I really don't. Um, I remember checking everybody in the truck, and there was another officer, Ted, that was in the back seat. Uh, he uh, he had some superficial, just skin level penetrators, but but he was okay. And then I remember the guys in the vehicle behind us. Actually, let me back up. I remember an Abrams, and, and this is this is I I was knocked unconscious, and I don't know how long because. There was nobody near us. We were the only patrol out. And when I woke up, it seemed like there was an Abrams on my driver's side door immediately. And I don't know where that Abrams came from. I don't know how long it took him to get there, but, he, but they were there. Um, <clears throat> then they pried the doors open. They pulled me out, threw me in another Humvee. Um, they threw Terry on top of me. Um, and so we were with, I think, an Iraqi national who started doing – um, CPR on, or not CPR, but started doing tourniquets on Terry and I, and I pushed him off of me and I went out of the truck and I went to try and help Krebs because they, they were trying to get him out of the turret. So I, I went over to him and I was trying to help him. Um, and at the same time they were prying Kevin's door open with a tanker's bar, which if, if for those of you that don't know, that's a really long crowbar that you use to basically change, um, the treads on a tank. So it's a serious piece of equipment. And they were using that to pry his door open. I remember when when they did, just the blood pouring out of the door on, onto the asphalt. Um, and then they grabbed uh, Krebs and I, and they threw us in the back of a Bradley, and and they evac'd us. Um, there was there was a, a fob right there. Um, I don't remember what it was called, uh, but <clears throat> there was a helipad there. They they took us into their aid station, did a lot of triage. At this point, I didn't even know I was hurt. I was going to say, did you ever um, do any self assessment yeah, of what was going no, on? You? No, I I thought I was good. Um, I, I had no idea. So, you know, I was sitting out there. They took Terry and Krebs into, um, into the, um, I guess the back part of the aid station. And I'm just sitting there, um, in, in the waiting area, one of the medics comes out, he's like, you know, Hey, you know, come back, let us check you out. And I'm like, no, man, don't worry about it. I, you know, I'm good. And he said, no, come on, just, just let us look at you. You know, you had your bell wrong. Let's check you out. And so I walked back with him 
And as soon as I sat down on the gurney, I, just blood started pouring out of my out of the sleeve of my jacket. And I looked over, and, and my entire sleeve was just red. And so I, the the medic was there, and like he obviously knows, right? Because he can see that my DCU top is soaked in blood. And I look at him like, "Hey, doc, maybe I'm not so good." And he's like, "Yeah, let's give you something for that." And he gave me my first shot of morphine, and then. You know, after that, nothing else mattered. So from from there until um, we were at the helipad waiting, we were in the back of an ambulance. I, I don't remember a lot of what happened there. So at this point, you know, Terry Krebs and myself were all hopped up on morphine. And <clears throat> this poor nurse. So Terry, like I said, he was just that giant a-hole fresh out of Citadel. This was December. He graduated in like October. Um, so we're sitting there. We're, we're waiting. And we're in the ambulance and Terry's right above me and he looks down and he says, Hey nurse, I outrank you. And I've been a jerk to these guys for the last few months because I thought it was cool. And I understand that you guys only give weed to people that are messed up. Well, these guys are messed up and I need to make them think I'm cool. So give them all weed. (laughs) (laughs) And at that point I I realized I'm like, all right, this guy's not so bad. Um, And then they loaded us in the helicopter. They took us to the the combat support hospital, downtown Baghdad. And I, so Terry was probably the most critical of all of us. So he was the first on first off. And I'll never forget as they pulled him out of the helicopter, he looks down at me and he grabs my hand. And he says, we're blood brothers. Now I just bled my ass blood in your mouth. We are now blood brothers. And so Terry, like his, ins- he was sitting in the backseat of the truck and penetrators had basically gone, you know, through, through his butt cheeks, through both of his knees, both of his thighs, both of his feet and both of his forearms. And he was just a hot mess. And I mean, he was he was bleeding through the Blackhawk on me. Um, and yeah, that we've we've been brothers ever since. You know, we we talk all the time. I love that guy to death. And Krebs too, for that matter. If he happens to be listening, I'm not leaving him out. What was the ultimate uh, diagnosis of you? Um, <clears throat> so for me, I had um, penetrators that were through and through my my right arm, severed my ulnar median nerve. Oh wow. Man, I'll tell you, Mark, I don't – again, I'm not a very religious person. Spiritual, yes. You look at these x-rays, it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> if you look at the entrance wound and exit wound in my arm, I shouldn't have an arm. It should have taken the bone and just taken the whole thing off. This penetrator, and I still have it today, I means the size of a quarter. It went in my arm, around my bone, and out of the other side of my chest, but it never touched that bone. I mean I, I should have lost my arm. I should have, I should have lost – my lungs and my heart and everything. Why'd you um, save it? I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, that, that thing, I, one day I keep telling myself, um, I'm going to do something with it, but it, it just sits in my, my box in my office. And it's just one of those things, man. And so it, at the time I didn't know what happened. And it wasn't until several months later when I got back and I met, um, Kevin's fiance. Um, and so she was, she was a nurse. So when, when he came back, she was his next of kin she asked all these questions um, and she got access that, you know, she probably shouldn't have had. Um, But she saw everything. Um, She saw him. She saw all of the autopsy details and everything else. And basically what had happened was his body had taken all the penetrators. So to to kind of reflect back to something I said earlier, um, for contrast, the first three guys that we lost were single barrel EFP. The one that hit us was the biggest found in theater to that point. It was an eight barrel. And Kevin Kevin had taken the majority of those in his torso. And <clears throat> through the autopsy and, and through like the schematics that they drew of the blast, 
the peace that, that came into me had gone through him, out of his heart, through his armor, through my armor, into my chest. And it's, I mean, he's, he saved my life, um, you know, consciously, subconsciously, whatever it was. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. And that piece of metal that came out of his heart is the reason why I do everything that I do today. Well, look, I mean, wow, powerful stuff. Um, when you think back to that day and that moment and everything that, that went on, um, you know, survivor's guilt is a real thing. Uh, but, you know, how do you process all this all these years later? So survivor's guilt is an interesting thing, and everybody processes things differently. Um, knowing Kevin the way that I do, if you would have gambled, if you would have – there's no way you would have won that argument. In any argument, you versus him, it would have been him every single time, or he would have knocked your face off so you would go out cold so he could have made it him. I, I knew that about him, and I never felt guilt that I was here and he wasn't. Now, the thing that – the gap that I had to fill was – I mean this was an amazing man that was going to do an amazing thing in life. And he left really big shoes to fill. And, and where I guess I have the survivor's guilt is I've got to live up to the gap he left in the world. And I take that as my personal responsibility. And, you know, everything that I've done since I got out and everything that I'll do for the rest of my life is it, it, it's meant to, to fill that gap. It's not about me. It's about filling this gap in the world that was left by this man who volunteered to do something that he shouldn't have had to do and pay the ultimate price as a result. You ever talk to his family? So his uh, fiance and I, uh, Dana, we, we were really good friends for a lot of years. Um, she uh, ended up uh, marrying a guy who is um, an operator, and and you know she's she's still in the military. She she was also she was an Air Force nurse herself, so she was she had separated at that point, and she was working as civilian nursing. So you know once once they got married, and, and she you know had a son, and, and moved on with her life. You know, I really haven't stayed in contact. You know, she's she's moved on, and you know it's important to respect her family now. Um, right, right, sure. Yeah, and it, but it's, it's really you know the three of us, Terry Krebs and myself. We you know we we carry that on every December eighth. It's gotten a <laughs> it's lightened up a lot in recent years. It, it used to be we get together and just act like complete grunts, um, trying to drink the the bar dry in his honor, and I think. You know, now it's been more kind of reflective with our families and, you know, we still contact each other and reach out. There was one actually, you know, you mentioned Under Armour. There was one um, opportunity where we had, I think it was for the Utah game where we did one of the Warrior games. <clears throat> and it was uh, Terry, myself, I think Krebs was overseas at that point, and, and the other guy, Ted. And we all got to be together and, and kind of do the, the whole honor captain thing on that day and, you know, represent Terry with the University of Utah and, that was actually one of Andy Dalton's last games in college when he actually he just decimated Utah that day um, before going to the Bengals. Um, but yeah, it was, it, it's been a pretty cool thing. It's the brotherhood that's resulted. Um, but I mean, there's still a lot of responsibility and a lot of work left to do. You were medically retired. Um, frustrations about that anger. <laughs> uh, okay um, with it. I mean, so that's a loaded question. I'll say yes and no. So, when I got out and when I was going through the system, things weren't ready yet. 
Um, they they weren't ready for the volume of guys who were coming back messed up. They're, they're still not ready now, Adam. You know that, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's got to be better than it was. So True, it has. But when, when, you're, when you're at rock separated. bottom, you can only go up. In fact, so <clears throat> when I first separated in September of 06, my retirement didn't process until sometime in 2012. It took him six Sounds years to process. Right. Yeah, dear lord. And yeah, and that, that's not that wasn't even the VA claim. That was that was just my military retirement. Um, I think, in, in hindsight, I think that there was a lot left unfinished. There was a lot more I could have done to help other people um, prepare for those missions. And and for a lot of years, and hell, when you and I first met, I was still trying to figure out how to get back in. Um, and I think I eventually realized that there was a lot more that I could do for the world and a lot more that I could do to live up to Kevin's void that, that wasn't in that, right? That there was there was other things I could do to impact people and make a difference in people's lives that weren't in the military. So for a lot of years, I was looking for different ways in. Like I was trying to, to train up and contract or train up and try and find somebody at MEPS who's willing to pretend that I didn't have all these residual things and that wouldn't ask me to put my hands over my head and, and all these things that I can't do. Um, and eventually I just woke up and said, you know what, this is my life and I, I've got to maximize it. I can't live in the past and, and, and be stuck in this thing that happened so many years ago. Speaking of so many years ago, uh, you said the thing that would scare your mother the most when all of this went down and she had to hear this story. Um, obviously, you know, I'm sure she was emotional about it, but how did that make you feel? So I, I don't remember. Um, I was on a lot of morphine for a long time, and I think by the time I saw her, she was just happy to see me. I understand at this point in time, too, um, my, my family and I weren't on the best terms, and they, they weren't really a part of my life. And it wasn't until maybe just the last several years where, where we've really kind of made amends. So I, I think you know now to look back at what I put her through, I feel horrible. I think at the time it wasn't really on my radar. Was the military and this incident the facilitator of sort of helping reunite you with your family? Uh, it wasn't. And if anything, it was kind of the wedge for a long time. Gotcha. Okay. Because I felt like I had something different to do. I felt like I had something more important to do. And it wasn't until I kind of got over that where I had room to, to let them back in my life. Now, I know that, uh, you know, you, you've obviously moved on, you're married now, and, um, you know, your, your life is different from when all this stuff had gone on. Um, you, you know, you say you have Kevin with you every single day. How much of the rest of the experience is still with you? It depends on the day. Um, so, I mean, honestly, last night, so I watched that, um, that, that Bush movie that I mentioned, and there was a lot of real shots in there from, you know, our time overseas. And that kind of messed me up last night. I would say that I think about it every day. I think there are a few days now where it's a significant factor in my life. There's other residual things that impact me every day. You know, I mean, I, I travel full time. You know, I've traveled full time for almost 12 years now, and I still can't. I still struggle to get on a plane. Um, when we were, when I was being evac'd out, finally, um, we were on a C-130 transport. And there was surface to air, like flying by the airplane, and we were doing combat dives and evasive maneuvers, and it maneuvers, and it scared me. And I still struggle getting on planes, and I still struggle in public spaces, and, and all of those things that you know so many people in, from our generation deal with. I mean, that stuff is there. 
And it's a struggle. Um, I compartmentalize it. You know, I, I, I deal with it because I have to, but it's definitely still there. I think um, there are certain times of the year where I remember certain things more than others. Um, and I know there's a lot of things I forget too. But I think for me, the broader mission of what I have to do transcends the hard things that I also have to deal with. It's interesting you brought up the things that you forget, and uh, and I'm at that same stage. You know, uh, like like I said, I, I'm coming up on 20 years, and a lot of the memories that I had that were so sharp, I guess, because of what's gone on now. Geez, uh, we're what almost coming up on 15 years since my first deployment. Um, yeah. You know, and it's like uh, with that all gone, um, I, I, part of me feels like I'm losing a sense of what was the best part of my military career and the best experience, despite the fact that so many bad things had happened. Um, and and to that end, I had a crazy thought the other day. I'm like, you know, as this thing is starting to wind down, I kind of feel like I want to deploy again. Like, I kind of feel like I, it's, it's a really weird, surreal thing. Like I have kids now and the game has changed for me completely a hundred percent, but there's a part of me that just wants one last hurrah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just one more, as crazy and stupid as it sounds, but it's like a moment in the sun, you know, to do what we do best and what we've trained to do. And and, and, and I know when I think about it, heart, like, really dive in, I think th- three weeks in now, I go, oh, what the hell was I thinking? This is, you know, this is crazy at this point in time because it's almost like the connection is what I'm losing. And that's where, what I kind of desire to have back. Man, it was the simplest, best time of life. If you really think about it, it is. I've said. I said sometimes deployment. If all you have to worry about is staying alive every day, sometimes it's the easiest thing to do. And that's it. I mean, you're sitting there, you're you're messing around with the guys that are around you, just like playing stupid jokes and nut slap and all the stupid things that we used to do. But it was easy. All of just the dumb things of life didn't matter. It was wake up, get some food, don't die, go to the gym, do it tomorrow. And that was it. There was nothing else to do. And I, you're right. Now, time erases all the, all the crap, right? So all the dumb things. I mean, look, you were, you're an officer, so you don't have to deal with a lot of the same crap that we had to deal with. But, I mean, stupid things like clean the oil spots out of the motor pool in the rain. Those days, I can tell you right now, I don't miss. <laughs> Pick up all the rocks from, like, the platoon area outside of the company in Georgia where the entire ground is rocks. I mean, those are the things that we forget, right? Because they were stupid and they were horrible. You know, you look back now, it's kind of funny, but I didn't want to do it then, <clears throat> but it just the brotherhood. Right. And then, you know, being an adult now, and I guess I was an adult then I'm still an adult, uh, but looking at the relationships and I've got a great network right now. And, and I have a lot of great people and I've met a lot of great people and very you know close personal friends but nothing replaces those relationships and those bonds. And, you know, somebody like you, Mark, I don't shoot. I, I was thinking the last time I saw you was on a really awkward double date, but we won't go into that too much, but <laughs> yeah, <I'll listen laughs> but nonetheless, <laughs> it's, it's been, it's been, it's been a while. Um, but it doesn't matter. And, you know, there, there's guys that I haven't seen in 15 years, but it doesn't matter because those relationships no, no time. And, you know, I look at people, you know, who you, who you work with now. I mean, I do a lot of client engagements where, you know, I'll be with a company or a team for years on end. And then when I'm done, you know, I spent more time 
more clock time with these people, with these clients than I did anybody else in the military with. But when we're done, we're done, and I and I never see them again, and I rarely think about them again, and, and those relationships just just fade. And I analyze that a, lo- a lot, right? Why is that? What is it about human connection that, on some levels, is so superficial, and on others, is so deep and meaningful? And then I get stuck in this: How do I recreate that? You know, be, being um, you know, almost forty year old guy now, the the pool of friends that you have is is really small and the people that you trust is even smaller and and for me it, it really comes back to you know i've got terry i've got krebs i haven't seen him in years but you know they're they're my go-to why is it that those two guys are basically it and all of these people that i see every day and all these people that i interact with at conferences and professionally and everything else what's different about those relationships and that's one thing i really I, i've struggled to to put my finger on and maybe i overanalyze it but it's difficult nonetheless. Well, again, uh, you know, the human condition, and it's just war. I mean, it's, it is unspeakable what it does to people. Um, and going through it with somebody is an experience that cannot be broken, and, and not even in death. Because as you've mentioned repeatedly, Kevin's with you every single day. Um, sure, it removes the physical connection between the two individuals, but that bond, that, that, that spiritual bond, that emotional connection you have to the individual never dies. Uh, and, and to that end, you take it with you wherever you go. And sometimes it's a burden for certain people and, and other people can use it as a blessing and uh, the myriad of emotions that go in between. But I think the big thing is, is that uh, we, we harp on this a lot here on the podcast is that, that you know, uh, there is a brotherhood, there is a connection that, that cannot be broken. Um, and we see it a lot, too, with Vietnam guys, you know. I mean, just to, from some for some background on the podcast and everything else, but uh, we've talked repeatedly with those guys about, you know, uh, how still after 50 years, you know, the guys that they talk to, it's it's they're in tears together, um, just celebrating life that they're still here because of everything that they went through. And so um, I, I, I hope that we'll have that same sort of connection with our brothers, um, you know, another 30 years down the road, but uh, obviously time will tell. Yeah, man, for sure. Let's just hope that it's uh, maybe on a triathlon course and set up a smoky VFW. <laughs> you ain't kidding. <laughs> um, and real quick, before we wrap things up here, just what you're doing now, um, you know, working with uh, one of the world's most respected management and strategy and consulting firms, your day-to-day life, what's it like? Yeah, man, it's, it's, it's actually great. So <clears throat> I've taken a lot of the things that, I've learned um, through this whole experience about, you know, valuing connections and valuing life. And I've really focused on trying to help organizations uh, humanize um, themselves. You know, it's kind of funny when you look at where it all started and and all those years ago to where we're at now, it was kind of like it was meant to be. So where we're at today in 2019 with business and the kind of work that people do, it's very different. So when corporate policy, policy was written, you know, we were building things. And the things that motivated people when we build things are a lot different than what motivate people now. And the kind of work that we're doing now is also very different. So you could motivate somebody to put brakes on a train faster, you know, if you say, hey, I'll give you an extra five bucks if you exceed quota today. You know, you can still have a job if you meet quota, but if you fall below quota, well, I'm going to fire you. And that, that works, that sort of work. But when you look at the work that people do today when it's like, you know, hey, we're programming self-driving cars and we're building AI, you don't want to use those same management philosophies because you don't want the person building your self-driving car 
to be scared, right? You want them focused <laughs> sure, on yeah. doing the right thing to make sure that you don't kill yourself. So <clears throat> the work that we do is really about how do we change corporate philosophy and management structures and performance management and things like that so that people aren't worried about those things, so that we're constantly developing people and growing new skills because business is getting faster and more technical every day? And how do we just make business so that it's a little less about the box, right? It's a little less about what Wall Street says, and it's a little more about a, a different kind of purpose. And I think you know, my generation, the next generation down is, is really motivated by that, right? How do we have a purpose? Life is short. Life is precious. How do we make sure that the things that we're doing every day are making the world a better place and not just padding some Wall Street dude's balance sheet? And it's been a really enlightening journey, both in terms of, you know, companies who are motivated by that and companies who think it's not a thing. And it's, I've been doing this enough years now to, to see that the companies who didn't buy into it and thought it was just a bunch of hippie stuff, um, they're not doing too well right now. And and some of the companies I've worked with have actually closed down because they refuse to, to change. And the companies that have been motivated by this are doing exceptionally well. And they're the ones that are they're kind of pushing the envelope and they're the ones that are doing, um, you know, things that are more focused on how do we make things a little bit better every time we touch them. And it's, I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. I won't get into the nerdy stuff, but it's a really cool thing. And when I, again, look back at kind of my transcendent purpose and what I feel like I need to do to honor Kevin, I I feel like, you know, there's something to this and there's something to the difference that I'm able to help other people make in the world. And it's, and look, it's, it's not about me, Mark. I mean, 99% of the time, most of the things that I say to clients for, you know, my billable radar, will have you talk to him or her. And what do you think about that? Um, but it's really just it's challenging people to look at the world different and consider different outcomes. It's it's a really cool thing. And apparently there's something to it. Otherwise, you know, I, I wouldn't have inadvertently wound up where I am now. So it's it's a cool thing. Well, brother, listen, I admire you. You know that um, I got nothing but respect for you, everything that you've done and accomplished. And uh, for all the uh, the battle scars, both physical and non-physical that you carry with you every day, uh, you know that I'm always here. A phone call away just in case you ever need anything. But certainly, um, I, I thank you for your time and certainly your candor and honesty and sharing the story with everybody. It's, it's, it's important and uh, we want to continue to tell them all. But, you know, as a friend, I, I love hearing it from you, brother. I really do. Man, and Mark, thank you for doing all the things that you do, too. I mean, you know, you, you've had the opportunity to do a lot of really cool things in life, but, you know, you always you always keep it grounded and you always, you know, make time to make sure that the people who need help have it. And it's, it's a really cool thing. And I hope that's something you can hold on to. Thanks brother. I really appreciate that. Honored to have you on Adam Mattis. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. Mark. Thank you. You've been listening to the hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Cox can help make your home smarter and your life easier. 
Now you can use your Contour Voice Remote to connect to your home life cameras so you can view them right on your TV screen using simple voice commands. That makes it easy to keep tabs on what's happening around your home right from your couch. Need to keep an eye on the kids when they're playing outside? Just say, show me my backyard camera into your Cox Voice Remote and watch them while you're in the house. And if you're waiting for a delivery and want to make sure it's there on time, no problem. Just say, show me driveway camera to check on it with your Home Life HD cameras on the TV screen while you go about your day. When you live in a home powered by Cox Internet, you can stay connected to what matters and let Cox take care of the rest. To learn more about all the benefits of your connected home, visit cox.com slash thisishome today.